Hello and welcome to the Week in 60 Minutes, brought to you by Spectator TV on this April the 27th. My name is Freddie Gray, I am the Deputy Editor of The Spectator and I will be your host today. Coming up, the Stormtroopers. Our cover piece this week is about Keir Starmer's new model army of centrists who are slowly taking over the party again, taking back control, as Katie Bull says in her cover piece. I'll be joined by Katie Bulls, that's our political editor, and the broadcaster and Times radio host and former Labour advisor, in fact, uh, Aisha Hazarika. Next, we'll go to Africa and Sudan, where a civil war is, has broken out in Khartoum. I'll be joined by Dr. Chirino Hiteng Fuo, who is a former minister in south of Sudan, to discuss the escalating conflict. And from Africa to America, Joe Biden, the President of the United States, has announced that he will indeed be running again in 2024 for re-election. I'll be joined by the broadcaster Grace Curley to discuss what that means, how unpopular or popular it is. Not very is the answer. Uh, and we'll also talk about the Republican side of the equation with the looming fight between Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, and of course, Donald J. Trump. And last of all, we'll talk about Hamlet, the play. There is another play called The Motive in the Queue about Hamlet and a very famous production of Hamlet, directed by John Gielgud and starring Richard Burton. Uh, and we will be discussing that with Robert Gore Langton, the male theatre critic, and the director, Sean Mathias. Now, if you like Spectator TV, and I'm sure that you do, uh, you should subscribe to our YouTube channel. And you can do that by hitting the subscribe button at the bottom of your screen and the bell icon, which is also at the bottom of your screen, I believe, unless YouTube has changed it uh, since the last time I did this. And we have a very, very special offer for you. To celebrate the coronation of King Charles III, we are giving you the chance to subscribe to The Spectator and you will get the next 10 weeks of the magazine and all of our digital offerings for the price of just one edition. Not only that, but we'll also send you a commemorative spectator mug, a coronation mug, absolutely free. To claim this very special offer, go to spectator.co.uk forward slash coronation. And I actually have uh, one of these commemorative coronation mugs right in front of me. Here it is says the spectator on the back, His Majesty King Charles III. Uh, and I'm going to pretend to drink from it to show you how to use it, just in case anybody doesn't know how to use a mug. Um, here we go. Delicious, lovely air. Um, do take up that offer. It's an absolute bargain. Now let's start with the Labour Party, because the cover of The Spectator this week is the Stormtroopers. And it's written by Katie Balls, our politics editor. And we are delighted to be joined in Scotland uh, down the line by Aisha Hazarinka. Uh, and you are an ex-Labour advisor um, in your past, are you not, Aisha? But more, more well known now for being a broadcaster and columnist. Hello. Well, it's lovely to be uh, with you from um, 
my parents' attic in Glasgow. <laughs> where, where, where in Glasgow? Um, they live in Newton Mairns um, in Glasgow. And so apologies for the slightly weird setup of the shot. It's, it's a bit like going back in time when you go and see your parents. So here we are. It's like a sort of museum that I'm sitting in right now. Well, I think they're, they're probably a bit more high tech than, than mine. Uh, but uh, Katie, let's start with you because you wrote the piece. Uh, you say that uh, Keir Starmer's centrist new model army is taking over the Labour Party or has established control of the Labour Party uh, and the, the recruitment process is ongoing. Uh, how centrist is it? Is it wrong to sort of call it a Blairite takeover? So I, th I think, as ever, it's, it's not a complete Blairite takeover. But if you're looking at the new intake of uh, future Labour MPs, these are the people being picked to be candidates. Um, over 100 candidates picked so far. Uh, lots of these are the key target seats. And if you look at the polls right now, they seem pretty winnable, um, given Labour are still quite far ahead on the Tories. I think it's fair to say it's more of a Blairite takeover than a Corbynite one. Um, but I think if you look at the candidates, there's only one really that could be described as Corbyn sympathetic, um, Faisal Shaheen, who was a candidate the last time around. And uh, instead, when you're looking at uh, the, the type of people who are being picked, I think, uh, you know, they largely, I think, fall into two, into two groups. So one is your, uh, I think, your Blairite, Brownite restoration, where you do have, for example, Douglas Alexander, former minister in the Labour government. He has the key target seat of East Lothian, where I am from. Um, and that is, I think, seen as one of the most winnable seats in Scotland. And you also have uh, former Blair advisers. You have figures who were advisers during the Blair government who are trying to actually step out and join frontline politics this time around. Um, you have uh, Labour princelings in the sense of, um, uh, you know, Charlie Falconer, you have his son, Hamish, is going for a seat. He's been selected, and that seat looks pretty winnable. Um, so. So that's on one side. And then I think the other side of this is uh, candidates who I think are being picked more for uh, the, their life experience um, than their long time commitment to the cause. Um, you know, this has created some upset because those on the left of the party feel as though, uh, you know, they're being shut out. Um, but also, I think, uh, you know, within they, but it is now the case that if you have an interesting career, so there's, you know, former prison officers, there's a former SAS man, um, what does that bring uh, to the table in Parliament? And I think that some of these things are seen as more important than being someone who has put out leaflets for X number of years. Uh, and a large part of your piece is very interesting because it's about how rigorous the selection process has been because they want to sort of wheedle out the bad eggs. And this is not just to do with Corbyn, it's also looking at the Tory party and how many disasters they've had recently. Uh, they're going through people's social media feeds and so on. Tell us a bit about that. Yes, when I was um, earlier this week, I was coming into Westminster and I bumped into a, a Tory advisor and they said, what are you writing about this week? And I said, I'm doing Labour candidates. He said, oh, well, yeah, they, they're right to be strict. Look at some of the people we got in 2019. <laughs> <laughs> so I think this is, a, this is a problem that both parties experience um, when it comes to selection of candidates. Um, it's not always that widely reported because it can be quite techy, but Clearly, the type of people who become the, the MPs of tomorrow are so important to how Parliament is run. The fact that Boris Johnson, yes, won a majority of 80, but it hasn't really felt like that. You've had so many you know, internal divides and um, people who aren't you know, particularly loyal to the regime and so forth. So Kirsten was trying to smooth that out. And as you say, um, vetting is a key part of that. Because we've had two snap elections in recent years, that always means you have much more uh, you know, fast-track candidate selection, which means things can slip through the net. But I think 
is also the case in the Labour Party um, that um, you had a situation where uh, often you know, some current Labour MPs complain that um, some of the candidates who were picked were picked more because they were the momentum candidate or they were close to, you know, or they were seen as a Corbyn ally than because they were actually suitable and had vetting taken place, they might not pass the test. If you think about some recent MPs, so you had Jared O'Mara, uh, the former Labour MP for Sheffield Hallam, uh, now obviously sentenced um, on various counts of, of fraud. Um, and you also have Claudia Webb, a uh, former Labour MP, who also found herself ending up in court. Um, so they're trying to avoid that and also these negative stories about you know, anti-Semitic posts and so forth. I think the question is, no one thinks vetting is a bad idea. Um, and Keir Starmer can't really afford the negative press of you know, more anti-Semitism stories if you look at Diane Abbott this week. Um, but is it, uh, when does the vetting start to be used as a, as a means to pick candidates slightly in your own image? And that's the complaint of some of, the, of those on the left, which is, yes, vetting, but they think it's not being applied in an equal way and it's being used as a way to, to stop some of their candidates getting through. Uh, Aisha, um, I suppose the obvious question is what happens now to the Corbynite left? Uh, obviously, the, the key figure, Jeremy Corbyn, is, is out the picture. He's been pushed out of the Labour tent now. Um, and Diane Abbott, uh, this week disgraced for her uh, slip in The Guardian. Uh, are these figures now going to form their own movement? Is there going to be uh, a divide in the Labour Party? Or has Keir Starmer got enough momentum because momentum being a choice word, has he got enough momentum of his own now to be able to pull the party together in the way he wants to pull it together? Well, I think the starting point with this is uh, an acknowledgement and a recognition of how much internal politics has gone on and how many battles have been won internally, sort of away from the the, the gaze of, of, of the media, which has put Keir Starmer in this position because when you look back to where we were with Jeremy Corbyn, the thing that made the Jeremy Corbyn era so difficult for many people who had fought militant, you know, alongside Neil Kinnock, was that never before in the Labour Party did you have the hard left, not just in leadership positions, but they controlled the NEC, they controlled the, the machinery of the party, and they largely controlled... Um, the parliamentary Labour Party as well. There was a huge influx of, 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 of sort of you know harder left um, leaning MPs, and I think that's something that we gloss over quite quickly when we talk about the achievements of Keir Starmer. I mean, he has done a lot of things behind the scene. I remember there was a conference a couple of years ago where he introduced some quite big rule changes to try and win back control from the hard left. For example, rules where sitting MPs, more centrist MPs, couldn't have the threat of deselection from from their um, you know trade union affiliates and and you know harder members in their constituencies. We saw that a lot, particularly with Jewish Labour um, female MPs, for example, during the Corbyn years. So I think it's a it's really important to acknowledge how much work has gone on behind the scenes. You know, we talk a lot about Keir Starmer's policy operation or his press operation, but his actual political operation behind the scenes has been incredibly effective and incredibly ruthless. So Keir Starmer is now in that position where he does control the party, but it has been quite a long and bloody battle behind the scenes internally for him to be in that position. And I think having wrestled, wrestled back control from the hard left internally, he and his team, particularly on the really 
that the sort of nuts and bolts political side of the operation, the people who do the organising, who manage the regional organising section, who liaise with the trade unions and, of course, who do the selections, they are really battle hardened because of the, the last you know couple of years. And so they are being very, very hardline about selections, about who gets into the party. And I think that's the right thing to do because of all the reasons that Katie um, cited. I mean, the, the Sheffield MP, um, Jared O'Mara, is an absolutely classic example of what happens when you rush people through. I think Claudia Webb has actually imposed on her seat um, in, in Leicester. So I think that the, the team around Keir Starmer on that political side, led by Morgan McSweeney, are being really, really tough. And I think they make no apologies for that. And I think that's the right thing to do. I mean, we, I feel sometimes the media, the commentariat, um, you know, a lot of people, you know, around our business slightly fall into a, a trap of complacency that it is just written in the stars that the Labour Party is going to win the next general election, that these um, you know, substantial poll numbers will just stick until the next general election. So the question now becomes, oh, is Keir Starmer becoming too centrist? Is he becoming, you know, too boring because he's too focused on winning an election, which is in the bag? No, nothing is in the bag yet. I was speaking to a senior Labour person the other day. Their worry is that these poll leads are in fact soft as butter. You have an example like the Diane Abbott um, issue. It raises the whole thing of anti-Semitism again. It's like a, it's a massive kind of open goal for the Labour Party. And you just look at history. There is nothing um, that that suggests that Labour is you know predetermined to win any election. I remember back in 2015 myself. You know we were briefing out. On the day of the election that actually, you know, how long would we give David Cameron uh, the chance to squat in number 10 before he'd be, you know, hoofed out? And actually it turned out it was a Tory majority. So absolutely nothing is set in stone. And I think that's why it's right that the Labour Party has been really, really tough. It's got to select people who are good. It's got to select people who um, could be good ministers as well. And it's got to, you know, select people who are just not going to be massive puddings. Like we have just had, you know, completely non-impressive people as MPs for, for a long time. And that is very much, Katie said, that is very, very true of um, the Tory party. I thought it was interesting this week, William Hague wrote in The Times that actually we should think about that dirty word, the E word, elitism, returning to politics a bit. We should actually strive to have really good interesting people in Parliament who will not just be good constituency MPs and that, you know, you should be a good constituency MP, but you can also actually, you know, serve on a national stage or an international stage as well, because you look at the quality of MPs in this party from, from both sides, Labour and Tory, for, for the last couple of intakes, and you think, yeah, this is not a pantheon of greats, but by a long stretch. Katie, I mean, Arisha spells up very well there how Storm has established control of the party machine and how important that is and, and, and how it's bigger than just the machine. It's about how politics works. But th there is this question of, you know, Corbyn did excite a lot of young voters. Uh, there was Corbyn mania. I think it's fair to say there hasn't been Starmer mania. And perhaps that's a, a good thing in Not some yet. ways. Not yet. It's coming. Uh, but one the, the the obvious question again is what's going to happen to that harder left, if you like, that that more youthful, uh, radical element in the Labour Party? I mean, what's happened to momentum? 
Yeah, I mean, momentum still exists. I think it is, uh, you know, a depleted force. I think there's an interesting question, as you say, which is, um, so when you're looking at these candidates now, I think, you know, I had one, uh, you know, Labour old hand effectively say to me, they are, there are plenty who seem like they'll be good future junior ministers, but do you have any future leaders? And obviously it's too early to tell, but there is a risk um, that you, you know, that, that if you know certain factions uh, feel as though uh, they uh, are not being included, you have you know uh, you don't have uh, a cross, of, you don't have that mix of views, um, which can uh, you know excite and, and you know appeal to different voters. I think when you look at what Kostama has done wholesale, as you say, you're not getting um, you know Corbyn mania. Though of course Corbyn mania did calm down. I remember going to Labour Live. Uh, that music festival, um, which by that point I think they thought would be the Glastonbury pyramid stage moment that Corbyn had um, with all those chants uh, and actually turned out to be, uh, I think, a, a disaster financially and, and quite a quiet affair. A bit, so, like, bit like the Tory Woodstock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We did have, they had the George Freeman Festival, didn't we, as well? Um, also not a huge... Uh, huge uh, sense of uh, momentum at that one um, but yeah I, so I think um, so I think these things can be fleeting but I think there is a question which is given Keir Starmer and, and those around him are taking the strategy of almost a, a safety first strategy I would argue and uh, lots of people are saying you know, well what's the difference between them and the Tory and there are lots of differences but uh, you have a situation with the attack ads for example where you know some people the Labour Party shouldn't be, you know, doing this as one for the Tories. It's below the Labour Party, uh, you know, to be to be loose with the truth. Um, is there a point when some of the younger base who do not look at Keir Starmer and see perhaps a Labour Party that uh, they liked under someone like Jeremy Corbyn go to the Greens? Or are you going to have such a desire to get the Tories out amongst those um, voters that you can actually... You, know, you can actually take the bet that trying to appeal to some of these, for example, red wall voters um, is more important because you're going to keep the others with you. I, I think it's interesting to see how far they can push that because it does feel as though quite a few things recently, um, you know, are, are not the ones that are appealing to, to those who, who would look to Jeremy Corbyn, but are they going to go anywhere else? Aisha, we had another resignation today. Emma Denko uh, uh, resigned, um, we think, probably because of this, what's going on with Starmer and Diane Abbott and so on. Uh, again, I don't want to sort of push on the Labour crack-up point, but I think it's worth exploring. If uh, the people who've been pushed outside the tent decide to form a movement, what sort of threat could it pose to Starmer? Well... I think if there is a lot of chat on on that end of the party about you know should you stay and fight, which of course what is what many centrists did um during the the Jeremy Corbyn years, and you could argue as Katie does in in her brilliant piece that um you know the centrists are now sort of on top, but I think the truth is for the foreseeable future the the centrists are, are going to dominate the the party, and I think many people on the sort of harder left of of the party remember a lot of these people joined very fleetingly because of Corbyn mania. They had always voted for other parties. They had, in fact, been involved in other parties which had stood against the Labour Party. Many of these people who came into the party as part of the Corbyn, Corbyn mania, they didn't actually have like a huge lifelong affiliation with the Labour Party. Some did, but a lot didn't. They were quite transient in terms of their sort of adoration for, for this, you know, Jeremy Corbyn sort of buzz that, that shone bright for a bit in 2017. 
but let's be honest, very much crashed and burned when the Labour Party got totally spanked in 2019. But I think in terms of what, what they do, there's not a huge amount that they can do. It's interesting to see John McDonnell um, make some comments this week. He sort of seems to be the last member of the old guard and the Corbyn leadership who hasn't had the whip removed. And he's quite careful what, what he says um, about the, the leadership and he's trying to offer some sort of constructive advice. Look, if I'm being charitable about that wing of the party, what I do have some sympathy with is that, you know, Labour always, I think, is at its best when it's a, a bit of a broad church, but you have sensible people in, in charge. You know, under Tony Blair's time, you know, Tony Blair, whatever you think of him, was the sort of most successful Labour leader that, that the party has ever had. You know, you, you still did have um, a lot of people on the left within the movement, um, you know, shouting at him at, at, at various conferences. And you had people on the left in terms of the trade union movement. And those people were always a bit of a thorn in, in the side of, 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 of Tony Blair's um, government. But many of his political team said, look, it is important to, to have this broad church. But that was also because Tony Blair was in in power, he had like delivered the goods in terms of what the political what the political party is meant to do, as in he's won power. Where I suppose like there is an argument, there are some people who are concerned that if everybody is a sort of cookie cutter Keir Starmer, you know, are you going to, is everything going to be then be quite bland and you know are you going to sort of excite people? And I, I think that is, you know, that is an, an argument. And I hear it a lot. Journalists like Michael Crick, for example, make that argument about the, the selection process. I suppose the counterpoint would be that the Labour Party has had so much excitement over the last couple of years. We've had so much excitement, including losing elections really, really badly and sort of falling apart at the seams. So to Katie's point, I think Starmer's team knows that there's a trade off. There's a trade off between being exciting and slightly thrilling and sort of, you know, edgy. Or the other side is the kind of take a safety first approach, the the the, the analogy about the Ming vase being carried across the, the polished floor and take a safety first approach because the Labour Party has not been this close and we're a long way out from a general election, but in terms of the polls, it hasn't really been this close to winning power for a very, very long time. So they just don't want to to, to risk it. I suppose what they will have to do, I, I think most people out there looking at, at the Labour Party right now are probably not saying, gosh, the candidates are a bit dull. Like they probably don't know anything about the candidates. They don't really know much about the shadow cabinet, to be honest. They sort of know two, three people. They know Keir Starmer. They know a little bit about Rachel Reeves. They know a tiny wee bit about West Streeting. They knew Ed Miliband from ages ago. That's sort of like the four people they kind of know in, in the shadow cabinet. A lot of the excitingness is going to be come down from, from Keir. The sort of thrill and the vision and the, the surge of, of excitement is not going to come from, oh, look, who we've, you know, selected in Derby North. It's going to be Keir Starmer closer to the election, coming out with more flesh on the bone. And that is an argument that I think is valid. A lot of people are saying, well, look, we're, we're now possibly a year out from the election. We, we've heard these five missions. We're not quite sure what they mean. We do need to see more flesh on the bone. Katie, the thrill of care. I saw you. I saw you rustling when, when... with excitement, yeah. quivering with excitement. I mean, we're waiting for the thrill of care. Um, I think we're yet, um, yet to yet to go um, commercial or mass market with the thrill. I think, um, but I, I think Taisha's point. Uh, you have 
when you're looking at the, part of the reason the candidate selection is so strict is that they don't know what type of victory or even defeat the Labour Party is going to the next election. So if you are John McDonnell, it is possible that Labour win with a majority of two. Then all of a sudden, if you're an MP on the left of the Labour Party who has managed not to have the whip suspended, a, a, a number, a group that's depleting by the day at the moment, and then you suddenly have a lot of power if you think about um, having a voice heard. So you, so you never quite know how things are going to land. And I think that's why, uh, you know, speaking to senior figures in the Labour Party, said, well, the point is, we, they obviously stress that they're not being complacent, it's their favourite thing to say, but they said, even if we don't win, the point is, these selections mean that we have already won in some ways in terms of changing the Parliamentary Labour Party. And that means if you end up with a hung parliament, a small Tory majority, they think the party's going to be in a much better place in terms of, um, you know, harder for it to veer back to what happened in 2015 with Jeremy Corbyn. Um, and that should mean it is in a better place to gain power, even if it doesn't happen the next time around. Aisha, thank you very much for joining Spectator TV and thank you Katie too. Now, a brutal conflict has broken out again in Sudan, in Khartoum in recent days. And the big media story here has been, understandably, how do we get uh, British citizens out of there and the government's various efforts to evacuate uh, British passport holders and British workers from Sudan. Um, however, a lot of people are also interested in how this conflict began uh, and the various complicated dynamics of Sudan, which have largely been overlooked in recent years. So I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Chirino Hitang Ofuo, who is a former minister in the south of Sudan, and he's joining us now from Kenya. Dr. Chirino, thank you very much for joining us. Most welcome. Um, well, let's start... Uh, with this uh, latest eruption of violence, how did we get here? How did this conflict start? Give our viewers a little um, history of what's going on. Thank you. Uh, in fact, uh, this is the most unfortunate uh, event in recent history that uh, a war just broke out unexpectedly because, uh, however, the crisis has been going on. There have been a lot of differences between the RSF and, uh, and the Sudanese army uh, since uh, the, the, the fall of uh, al-Bashir. And uh, the RSF eventually uh, emerged as a, a force that was coming to stabilize the aftermath of Bashir's collapse from power. And uh, unfortunately, the RSF became a prevailing and dominant uh, military force in, in, in Khartoum, and particularly within the center of power in, uh, in, in, in Khartoum. Uh, first, uh, there was a cooperation between uh, Burhan, uh, President Al-Burhan, or uh, Commander Al-Burhan and Hemeti, uh, uh, eventually because they worked together in Darfur for, for many years. And so people saw that as maybe something that can bring uh, good working relations between the two. Unfortunately, uh, for ideological uh, reasons, these people fell out, uh, particularly when they took over power from the from the civilian rule under Prime Minister uh, Hamdok. Uh, in short, really, uh, it was never expected that this brutal war could uh, could uh, could happen between Burhan and and Hemeti, and uh, rightly so, because behind it, really, which many people do not see and do do not know, and maybe by now 
they have known is behind this is actually the Islamist, the 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 the, the Islamist uh, who are uh, under Al Bashir, the, the 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 National Islamic Front, and they are still there. They were hibernating behind, and uh, and they took advantage of this and triggered the the, the, the crisis between uh, Burhan and, uh, and, and 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 Hemeti, and this is where uh, many people are shocked, are taken by shock, particularly Sudanese themselves, those the experts who know uh, the Sudanese politics will really find out that this was totally something that came up like that struck like lightning between the two. But it is really the Islamists who are behind it, who want to come back to power in the in a, in, a, in the Sudan, who are very upset with uh, with the emergence of Hemeti and particularly the RSF, and that's why they revert to them as a uh, militia, uh, and uh, they don't really look at them as uh, a military uh, force uh, like the Sudanese army, who are very proud. Uh, military who look at themselves as an army, a strong army in the country that fought many wars, that was able to defend the country against uh, the SPLM, uh, John Garang's uh, Sudan People's Liberation Movement, uh, Sudan People's Liberation Army, a very strong army that built over 20 years, that they resisted that and they were able to stand and uh, until they signed peace and uh, the South broke out. Well, the, um, the, the RASF, uh, we understand, grew out of the Janjaweed, who uh, did become internationally recognised a few years ago because they were terrorising particularly Christians in the south of Sudan. Um, in Darfur, yes. In Darfur. How uh, is, is it correct to see the RSF, the Rapid Support Forces, as uh, the more vicious Islamist uh, faction Actually, they, you are right there because they are actually Islamists. They were, they, were, they were initially trained as Islamists. They, actually, there is very thin line of difference between the RSF and, 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 and the Islamists now who want to take over power back uh, in, in, in Sudan. In fact, the Janjaweed were the, up to now, including Hemeti, were still uh, sanctioned by the international community because of the atrocities they committed in Darfur. In fact, nobody even expected uh, the, the RSF to be legitimized now, uh, as the way it happened after Bashir's collapse from power. And, uh, and, 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 and there is the, the, the little difference between the two. I think it has to do with the, the, the tradition of how the Sudanese army have been trained uh, conventionally, and they look at themselves as a, as a conventional army, unlike the RSF, who, who, who are always referred to as, a, as, 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 as paramilitary, uh, meaning that they, they are not really uh, the same as the Sudanese army. And, and, and I can agree with you that I think the, the differences are very thin between the RSF when it comes to Islamic ideology. Uh, and uh, an oddity of, of this conflict has been that it's broken out during the end of Ramadan, which is meant to be a time of peace and Absolutely. reflection. Absolutely. In fact, on a Friday, I, I, I'm told on the 14th, on a Friday, they had a dinner. And uh, one of the leaders of the of the Transitional Council is uh, General Malik Agar, who is the leader from Blue Nile, who was organizing to mediate between Hemeti and uh, and Burhan. And really, they did not expect uh, this crisis to, to to break out, especially during uh, Ramadan. It was still shocking even to people like General Malik Agar. He never expected that this war was going to happen because he was one of the mediators, and uh, he he has always tried to play this role. Of being a moderate and and and, and having the SPLM, uh, SPLA background, uh, and, 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 and now one of the leaders of the SPLM knows. So uh, Malik 
was not really keen to see this kind of, uh, of, of crisis uh, unfolding. And how do people in the South, you're, you're from the South, how do, how do people in the South feel about this uh, conflict between what seems to be uh, rival uh, Islamic or Islamist groups in the North? This is a very interesting question because uh, actually many people in the South are, are divided. Uh, there are many who are sympathetic to the situation, but also a sizable majority who have never forgiven the North for what they did to the South have said, okay, let them test the salt of wood they have always imposed on the South. It is, uh, it is unfortunate that uh, many uh, Southerners of that nature uh, could, could look like SL. Let us see the North uh, boil into this because they have always put us in the South uh, under similar circumstances. But the majority of, of, of Southerners also who are totally much, who probably spend a lot of their time growing and doing a lot of business or having gone to schools in the North, really feel the sympathy of what has happened. But otherwise, there are if, uh, others in the South who says, yes, let, let the North uh, test it. For, for over 50 years, the South has been subjected uh, by, 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 by Northern Sudanese elites under similar circumstances. And what about the involvement of uh, outside powers? Uh, I mean, I think in the West, uh, there was a lot of uh, concern about Darfur, but perhaps we turned our attention away from it because it seemed to have settled down. There seemed to be some sort of political um, settlement. And now there's a lot of talk in, in Western media about the role of Russia um, because of, uh, I think, the Wagner group um, seeming to have some connection with uh, the Russian mercenary group, seeming, seeming to have some connection with the RSF. Um, are, is this a case of Russia and the West sort of squabbling for power or is it more complicated than that? No, I think, OK, I think that it has been, uh, of course, that scramble for Africa, they call it now. Maybe you call it as another struggle, a scramble for Africa, where Russia versus the West uh, have been uh, seen uh, playing different roles. But I think uh, there has been a, a larger involvement of, uh, of of the RSF leader, particularly Hemeti, with uh, with uh, with Russia and uh, with other Middle East powers, mainly based on his engagement in business, in trade. He's he's, he's a very big businessman. Uh, this Hamdan Daglo, uh, Hemeti has been, he, he has actually monopolized uh, gold business in, uh, in, uh, in Darfur, in, uh, in the Sudan, and, 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 and has, has become uh, the center of attention, particularly by Russia. And he, he has a connection even with the Wagner Group, as we, as, as, as we have all seen now, it's no secret. And uh, so Hemeti has really had a lot of business with, uh, with, with, with Russia, other than uh, the West, like uh, Britain or the, or the United States of America. Uh, you mentioned gold. Uh, Sudan is a very resource-rich country. Uh, obviously, this is a very another troubling phase for it. Uh, but what do you think is a is an optimistic scenario for the future? How could this be settled? This uh, this situation in the Sudan is really very very volatile, and I think that uh, uh, many people never expected it. As I said it before, and. Uh, the, 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 the attitude of the leaders now, if you look at uh, Burhan uh, versus Hemeti, uh, they have just signed this uh, armistice, this truce, just for, to allow the evacuation of uh, uh, foreigners from Sudan. But they are not giving room. They have never given any signal of giving room for any talks or, or any negotiations. So for some of us, an analyst uh, who know uh, similar conflicts, 
we, 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 I'm very worried that it could turn out like uh, Yemen or Syria. Mm. Uh, well, and, uh, so... I'm actually impressed also by the response of the West, uh, particularly Britain and the United States of, of America, and particularly Britain for, uh, for that matter, having been the, the colonial power for Sudan and, uh, and, and a government that has associated itself with Sudan for a long time, that they have responded quite uh, uh, very fast. Uh, and, 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 and putting large attention, and you hear uh, uh, British Foreign Secretary, the U.S. Secretary of State, all at least on daily basis, have given a lot of their time to this, and I think that's uh, an impressive part from that uh, perspective. Dr. Chirino, thank you very much for coming on to Spectator TV. Now let's turn to America, where on Tuesday President Joe Biden announced that he would be running for re-election in the presidential election next year. This surprised nobody. Um, we even told you at The Spectator back in January on our cover that this was going to happen. And I think it's also fair to say that it hasn't really excited anybody as well. Um, I'm joined now by Grace Curley, who is host of The Grace Curley Show. Um, Grace, a lot of people are talking about this, but it's worth reflecting on. A majority of Democrats um, don't want Joe Biden to run. Um, a huge majority of young Democrats don't want um, Joe Biden to run. I think something like 76% of 18 to 34-year-olds don't think he should run. Um, and yet, here we are, we're approaching 2024, um, and he's going to run. Why? I think he's going to run. I was thinking about it over the weekend because almost the opposite reasons why Trump is running. So Trump has a lot of enthusiasm with voters. People really, um, they feel connected to Trump. They feel this loyalty to Trump. With Biden, it's the opposite. So I think with Biden, it's the establishment who's very happy with his performance. They like having somebody who's really just kind of a puppet who they can pull the strings you know, he's not going to fight back. He's not going to give them a hard time. He really doesn't know what's going on. And so they like having that person in there who they can boss around. Now, as you said, the enthusiasm from voters might not be there, but the establishment and, and the swamp, really, as far as Democrats go, who are in charge, they don't care. They don't care if the voters, they know the voters will vote for him. I mean, that's the big difference here. There's a difference between lacking enthusiasm and people not actually going out and voting for you. And I just because Democrats aren't excited about him, I don't think they're they're going to uh, not vote for him. Can you be precise, uh, particularly for our uh, mostly British viewers, we think, uh, what is the establishment in America? What is the swamp? Who are these people who have decided that Joe Biden? Is it not Joe Biden has decided that Joe Biden is going to run again? No, I think that there's a lot of, you know, power players in the Democrat Party, a lot of like Senator Chuck Schumer. And then you have these Congress people who have a lot of power on social media. I think they have a big sway in, in what actually happens in D.C. And so that's what I mean when I say the establishment. I mean, people surrounding Joe Biden who are the decision makers, because I don't think he's a decision maker. And I think if and probably, you know what, probably there's a mix, too, of the media is involved as well, because I think if the media had wanted to and they had softened the soil a little bit going into this, they could have taken Joe Biden down with his scandals, but they covered for him. And so I think a combination of Joe's colleagues in D.C. and also the media kind of running cover for him have allowed him to seek another term as president. 
And what it leaves us with um, is a situation where the majority, I mean, Joe Biden and indeed Hillary Clinton did win a popular majority. Let's not get into the specifics of the, both of those elections. But uh, the majority of people who have voted Democrat in the past are left with a candidate um, who they don't like. Uh, I don't know if you know the comedian Bo Burnham, but he had a very good song called Joe Biden, where he sang, they're really going to make me vote for Joe Biden. That was back in 2020. Uh, <laughs> it's going to be exactly the same thing in 2024. And uh, a lot of people, uh, I've done a piece about it myself this week, are thinking this speaks to some great dysfunction in American democracy that unpopular presidents just carry on. What do you think about that? Yeah, I guess it's just kind of sad. Like I was thinking about that as well. I mean, 2020, we had, we're probably going to have the exact same matchup. And uh, it's, it kind of shows it's, it's very uninspiring to put it mildly. And I understand why young voters are frustrated too, because they're a lot of these young Democrats are very radical. They're very progressive. And there's plenty of people who are kind of climbing the ranks who have been dying to have the torch passed to them. But I think what, there was a really good piece by Victor, I think it was Victor Davis Hanson in American Greatness. And he kind of wrote about how it's a good way when you have these older Democrats who a lot of younger people would consider boring and, you know, past their prime, not to, I don't want to Don Lemon myself. I just mean, you know, they're in their eighties. Um, it's a nice way for Democrats to be able to put up this front that we're old school. Look at, you know, we still kind of are catering to the center, you know, middle of the road Democrat, even if they're not. So I think that that's a part of it, too, which the young people probably it frustrates them. But it is a smart play because as much as they want a younger person in there who's just going to tell it like it is and really tell the voters exactly what they want to hear, you're better off with a Joe Biden who can at least pretend to be this old grandfather, you know, who's working across the aisle and used to get a beer with people who are conservatives and la, 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 la. That kind of cover for Democrats actually works in their favor. An interesting element is Joe Biden's vice president, who is, of course, Kamala Harris, who, as everybody probably knows by now, is even less popular than Joe Biden uh, and has widely seen to be a fairly inept veep. Uh, there is some speculation that Biden could drop her um, and pick a more um, exciting or uh, successful or inspiring candidate for 2024. Um, which might uh, address some of the concerns about his second term, because if, if, uh, if he's going to be 86 by the time he finishes his second term, if uh, his health fades even more, you may get a situation where the vice president has to step up and become the president. So who he chooses if he drops Kamala Harris uh, will become very, very important. Do you think it's possible or likely that he will drop Kamala Harris? And who might he choose? No, I don't think it's possible. I never thought it was possible, even even when the rumbling started. I just don't think there's any way that you can do that without really upsetting. Like a lot of those voters we just talked about, they, they might not be excited about Kamala Harris. They might not love her, but they love getting mad about things. They love being offended. They love, you know, outrage. And um, giving Kamala Harris the boot would definitely cause a lot of... Um, frustration and anger 
And I've, I've read things before about people saying like, oh, you know, he could just, he could pick another black woman to come in. There's, you know, cause th there's so many, um, and I'm not denying that, that there's plenty of candidates, but that to me seems really, um, like he's just using people at that point. If you're just taking one person and swapping them out for another, and you think that, uh, these black women are interchangeable, that to me seems like a really dangerous road to go down. And if I were Kamala Harris or any of her fans, she might not have a lot of fans, but I would be offended. I, I would, I would take that as a huge insult. So I don't think he's going to go near that. I think he's just going to, they're going to play the same, the same thing they did in 2020. It worked. So why mess with the good thing, I guess. You said that you think uh, the Republican nominee, who the person who Joe Biden will probably face next year is probably going to be Donald Trump. Uh, we've talked before on Spectator TV, we've covered it quite a lot in the magazine uh, about Governor Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida. Um, obviously, Trump has this very significant lead in the polls, quite how much we can read into the polls at this early stage is a matter of debate. Um, do you think Ron DeSantis' chances of being underrated at the moment or overrated? I think underrated. I, I think the fact that he hasn't even officially thrown his hat in the ring yet. He hasn't really given us his 100% attempt at this. I wouldn't count him out. I think we still have a long way to go. I mean, people forget in 2016, before those debates, it, the, the landscape, the field was totally different. Nobody had Donald Trump on their bingo card. So a lot can change when you start to see these candidates interact and America gets a, a real look at who they're, who they're potentially picking. Um, I think that there is this rush from Republicans to just choose and have it done with. And, you know, it's, it's Trump and there's no other way to go. But I kind of think we're doing ourselves a disservice. And I'm honest, I'm a conservative. So if anyone out there, I'm fully Republican. So I, I just think that we're, um, we're eliminating our options very early. And I don't think that's a smart strategic move. Uh, DeSantis' sort of ace card, if you like, would be Trump fatigue, um, that a lot of voters uh, are fed up of all the drama about Trump. They, they, they may like him, they may even love him, but they may think uh, we've been beaten uh, three times in a row, arguably nationwide, in the midterms in 2018, in the presidential in 2020, in the midterms again in 2022. Um, and it makes more sense to move on. Do you have Trump fatigue, Grace Curley? And do you think your the audience of your show has Trump fatigue? The audience of my show definitely does not have Trump fatigue. Um, I go through waves of it, you know, especially over the last couple of months where you have things like you have the raid at Mar-a-Lago, you have the Trump indictment. I mean, you have these moments where your Trump fatigue gets overwhelmed by your sense of outrage about what's happening to him. So then you kind of go back into feeling like this guy's getting screwed. I'm rooting for him. And so I've kind of fluctuated between the truth, between the two. My audience has not. My audience is most, for the most part, very much team Trump. Um, but yeah, I think this is what we keep hearing from a lot of people is DeSantis could be Trump without all the baggage. Now, what then I hear, if you bring that up from, Trump Republicans is, well, you're so naive if you don't think they're going to go after DeSantis in the same way they've gone after Donald Trump. And what I always respond to that is, 
I am not stupid. I know they're going to go after DeSantis. They've already tried multiple times with these crazy stories about him. What I think it comes down to is who can handle that better and who can kind of not get distracted by that as much. And that's where I think DeSantis's appeal lies is that he has an ability to not get too sucked in to a lot of these small fights and small arguments. Yes. Well, one uh, potentially very big fight is on the issue of abortion. Um, because of Donald Trump and because of the justices he put on the Supreme Court, uh, last summer we had the Dobbs decision, which overturned Roe v. Wade, uh, and the legal right to a, the federal right to an abortion in America. And yet, since that's happened, uh, abortion has sort of flipped as an issue and become a big, big winner or a bigger winner than it was uh, for the Democrats um, in a way that is, alarms Republican strategists because you're seeing a lot of progressive women and young people going out and voting in ways they didn't before for the Democrats because they want to stop the Republican led challenge to abortion. Ron DeSantis recently signed a six week bill, uh, sorry, banning a ban on abortions after six weeks in Florida. And Trump has been strangely muted on abortion of late. And in fact, in I think his latest statement on it, he said this is rightly a state's issue. Um, how is that going to play out on the Republican side? It almost reminds what Trump is doing with DeSantis kind of reminds me of what a lot of Republicans I'm sorry, a lot of Democrats do with Donald Trump, where they get so focused on the person that their policies change based off what he does. And so if he reverses course, then Democrats tend to want to do the opposite of whatever he's doing. I think DeSantis is kind of having that effect on Trump where he wants to be against DeSantis. So he's changing a lot of the things that he's been saying over the last couple of years. Um, this, this issue, though, is so tricky. And I, I saw today that Nikki Haley said that, you know, the country needs to come to a consensus on abortion and, and she thinks she knows how to do it. And I just don't understand how that happens. Like, I, I don't I don't see how because I've been seeing Democrats and Republicans saying, well, you know, if if these candidates could just kind of move to the center and change their stances a little bit, then they might win over voters. And that's fine if you're a candidate who really doesn't believe what you're saying. And there are people who feel in the middle about abortion. I'm kind of one of those people. I don't tend to have a super strong opinion. But if you are a, a Republican who has a strong belief that abortion is killing an unborn human, then how do you move to the middle on that? Like, how do you how do you convince someone to kind of just abandon that for the sake of you know widening the tent? And I'm not trying to sound holier than thou. I'm just saying I, I don't I don't see how we can come to a consensus on something that for a lot of people in this country is black and white one way or the other. If uh, Donald Trump does win the nomination, uh, do you think he will has a better chance of beating Joe Biden than Ron DeSantis would? No, no, I, I don't. Um, I, I think. If I were really to guess, I would say Ron DeSantis probably has a better chance of beating Joe Biden because there's a lot of people who um, I I guess it's I don't think the left will be able to kind of gin up the same hatred for Ron DeSantis in the short amount of time as they did for Donald Trump. That to me feels like lightning in a bottle, that kind of Trump derangement syndrome. 
is going to be hard to duplicate with somebody else. And it's going to be hard for the media to tell people, oh, this guy's actually worse than Donald Trump. You thought Trump was bad. We told you Trump was a dictator. But this new guy who seems to be a family man and he's pretty low key and he doesn't go on Twitter a lot. He's actually worse than Trump. I just think there's a lot of people in the center who aren't going to buy that. And so I think that the combination of that and the fact that DeSantis is a lot younger and he could really showcase that on the debate stage against Joe Biden, I think that's that's a win in his column. I think the polls so far as to who would win in a matchup, DeSantis Biden or Trump Biden, are quite mixed at the moment. Um, but probably the reason why Trump might have more of an advantage is that he has always been able to drive out low propensity voters. Um, and because of his name recognition, because of the people that a lot of people, the fact that a lot of people who don't normally vote do vote for him. And I suppose there is doubts about whether DeSantis would be able to do that. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's valid. And, and I think that this is why you have to have a primary and you have to kind of keep an open mind. Like I keep trying to remind people there's nothing wrong with wanting to see people actually debate things in a primary and decide who you like after watching all of the candidates. And for example, I like Ron DeSantis. I have no idea if he could handle questions on foreign policy. I mean, there's a whole there's a whole section of things that he hasn't really had to tackle as the governor of Florida. So that would be good to that'd be good to know. It'd be good to know where he stands on a lot of these issues. And it would be good to hear him respond to a lot of these criticisms from Donald Trump and, you know, voice whether or not they're even valid to begin with. But that whole process, I'm noticing Americans have a lot less patience for now. People people don't seem to want that at all. So they've already kind of chosen their sides in a lot of these cases. Grace, I think we'll end it there. But uh, I should say, um, because our viewers probably won't be able to spot it, but you are eight months pregnant. So uh, the next time you come on Spectator TV, uh, you will have a baby. Uh, I, well, I don't know. We may have you on sooner. Who knows? Um, but uh, all the best with everything and very nice to see you. And finally, let's talk about Hamlet. Robert Gore Langton, who is the theatre critic for the Daily Mail, uh, has a very interesting arts lead in The Spectator this week. About uh, It's about a new play, really, which is called The Motive and the Cue. Uh, and it's about a very famous production of Hamlet, uh, which starred Richard Burton and was directed by John Gielgud. Um, Robert joins me now, along with Sean Mathias, who is uh, a director and who directed, I believe, Ian McKellen in Hamlet. Is that right, Sean? It is right, yeah. Uh, and uh, both on and film and on stage, I should say. Uh, right. It's to be released this, later this year. Oh, very exciting. Uh, Robert, I'll start with you because you wrote the piece. Um, this production uh, was booze-addled, booze uh, as you say in the piece. Um, it was fraught and disastrous, but was also a triumph. Um, and that's why there's now a play about it. Can you explain a little bit? Well, uh, yes. I mean, John Gilgood... Um had uh, got to know Burton a little bit. Um, and it was suggested to him, I think, that he might want to do um, a play celebrating Shakespeare's quarter centenary. This is 1964. And the two actors came, to, uh, the two actors came together. And, um, uh, and it just took off. The idea um, was floated that they would do it in America. Burton had just... Um, was in the middle of divorcing his wife, Sybil. They'd 
he'd been working with Liz Taylor on Cleopatra, uh, and it was mired in scandal. Um, and I think what John Gilgood didn't realise was just what a roadshow the whole uh, Liz and Dick uh, um, uh, American thing was. That they were superstars. No one could quite work out which was the biggest star. And um, and Gilgood found himself uh, directing Burton, um, uh, and I think in the end trying to get from Burton. Uh, the Hamlet that Gilgood gave, and not really succeeding. Mm. Sean, uh, there have been obviously many very famous performances of Hamlet. Do you think Burton was the greatest, or if not, who who was better? Well, I, unfortunately, of course, I I didn't get to see. I never saw Burton on stage. I, it's a great. Nor did I. <laughs> no, not very few of us did. Um, we're too young, as it were. <laughs> but uh, I'm like Burton. I'm a, a fellow Welshman, and so of course I'm a great fan of that voice and his screen mm. presence um, was astonishing. And people who saw him on stage, <clears throat> everyone says it's a, a a great great shame that he didn't go on to have a stage career because he was a wonderful stage actor. Um, actually, I lie. I did see him. I saw him and Liz do private lives all those years later. That was absolutely dreadful. So, um, unfortunately, it was a, a very bad uh, version of that amazing play. But, um, I mean, he should have been... He, there are so many reasons why he could have been a, the most wonderful Hamlet. It, in Robert says in his very excellent piece, a re- really good read, it makes one want to go and see the play, Robert says that Gilgood said... Um, he didn't have the bearing of a prince. <clears throat> I, I think in contemporary terms that, that's sort of slightly irrelevant because the, the, one th- the thing about Hamlet that everyone says, he's changed. The Hamlet we meet, the audience meets, is not the Hamlet he was before his father died. So his bearing could have changed considerably. He's not, he doesn't behave like a prince at any point during the play. So I, I would have loved to have seen Burton and... Um, isn't it, isn't it amazing? It was critically such a flop, but such a huge, maybe the, the most commercially successful Shakespeare that's ever been staged. But why was it, why was it so successful? Is it because, uh, you know, the, 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 the nature of Hamlet, uh, the romantic interest that there is in Hamlet, uh, lends itself to a, a sort of tragic, disastrous production? No, I, I don't think that's right. I think what it was was that Burton uh, was just waiting. Everybody was so excited that about Burton's voice, apart from anything else, that he would be the inheritor of Gilgood in a way, that it was a new voice, a working-class voice, a Welsh voice, and, and I think it generated enormous interest. The real problem, as I, and I didn't see it either, I mean, n- nobody's seen it now, and you can't even see it, there was a recording, and you can't even see that because Burton had them all destroyed. But the real problem, I think, from, a, a, um, from Gilgur's point of view, was that he was an alcoholic, and he was completely unreliable in rehearsals. Um, he had a disease, and I mean, it must have been a nightmare. We don't know, but I mean, he was well into probably two two bottles of vodka a day by then. And I think I think the whole thing was a triumph for Burton just for getting through it. But I think Gil could, couldn't contain him, couldn't really get what he wanted from him. Um, and, and it became this cause celeb. And, of course, the fans just wanted to be around Burton and Liz Taylor. So the whole thing got completely caught up in a sort of different roadshow, I think. 
Sean, presumably you didn't have uh, similar problems with uh, Ian McKellen. We didn't have problems with Ian, but we, had, we, were, we were fraught with uh, troubles. I mean, first of all, of course, when, as we were right before, moments before we were going into rehearsals, the pandemic hit and the first lockdowns hit, so we were postponed for a long time. We did workshop the play at Hackney Empire in the middle of that first pandemic summer, um, but we still couldn't go into the theatre. So I came up with this idea of making a movie, which was not a film version of the stage production, because we hadn't done the stage production, but an actual film. So I came up with a treatment, and the entire film is set within the Theatre Royal Windsor. Theatre Royal Windsor becomes Elsinore, if you like, um, because we had the great uh, good luck that Bill Kenwright, the producer, owns that theatre. So we were able to go in there and film. But we were fraught with problems during filming. Um, people left, people walked out, people were in high dudgeon. A lot of people were in a great state of uh, neuroses and, and disturbance because of the pandemic, because of being locked down, because of being confused. And then we finally came to do it on stage. And again, we were fraught with problems. Our Laertes left us before the first preview and McKellen had to rehearse the whole fight scenes with an understudy on the very first day we went in front of an audience. He did that aged 82 or something ludicrous. But then it was my crazy idea to cast an 80-year-old as Hamlet. Um, and... Uh, Actually, I, I, I'm very proud of the film. It's, I think it's terrific. And the, the show went very well. People, because of Ian's fame, people came from all over to see it. But it's, it's interesting. I, my idea was that anyone can play anything. It's, it's theatre. Theatre is fantasy. It's part of the imagination. Wouldn't it be great to hear a man who spent his whole life saying Shakespeare publicly say those words of a young man because psychologically it's such a an extraordinary play i mean shakespeare was was used in the audience in a freudian or jungian way when nobody had ever even thought you know hundreds of years before therapy came about so this the, the actual thought process that hamlet's going through and shares with the audience is so it's 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 such an incredible challenge for any young actor i remember ben wishaw was only about 19 when he played it he brought such an incredible dark, really dark and, and melancholic side to Hamlet. David Tennant, who was, was older but still a young man, brought out all the irony. You know, so, and Jonathan Price did, with Richard Eyre, did that incredible Hamlet where they, um, they, they used the idea from The Exorcist of Hamlet being li- Hamlet's ghost being literally inside Hamlet and Jonathan Price's body contorting in sort of, you think he was going to vomit all over the stage in anxiety. And that, that brought the, the, the ghost story, made the ghost story more relevant for a modern audience. So there are so many different interpretations of the Hamlet. Is, is that, uh, Robert, is that why you think that the, the, the Hamlet has, has been so popular in, in modernity, is this psychological element and, and the fact that there are, there are plays within plays and, you know, there's been various spin-off plays. This is obviously one of them. Uh, you've got Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, uh, being probably the most famous other one. Um, is that why the arts world or the modern arts world is so drawn to it? Because of this, the sort of the psychological tensions... Uh, totally. I mean, I, 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 think, I think you're right. And what Sean was saying is all these different people bring different things to Hamlet. And, and in a way, you never really play Hamlet, you play an aspect of him. And so all of those actors he mentioned brought something new to the table. And the reason I think it persists this plague is that it's, it has this amazing ability 
um, to reflect the current times. And, and it has this extraordinary, um, you're seeing uh, a completely modern mind. Um, well, not completely modern, but there he is. It's almost as though he knows he's in a play. And what I love, I'm, I'm, I'd be very interested to see if this comes out in this new play about Burton, is how, how much um, of Shakespeare they bring into the rehearsal room. I think it's a great sort of challenge for an actor in a way that perhaps Lear is a very different thing, but he has this freshness of mind and he's so philosophical and it all sounds so present when you hear it, in a good performance anyway. Sean, do you think we could, I mean, obviously Hamlet, we're talking about Hamlet here, but do you think that could be said of uh, many Shakespeare plays? I mean, Coriolanus uh, is one that has a lot of modern interest. Uh, Macbeth always has uh, interest. Do, do the, the best Shakespeare plays just always adapt themselves to the, to the age that we're in because they're so deep and so rich? Well, I mean, he, he's certainly probably, the, well, he's the most performed playwright ever, that ever was and probably ever will be, and not just in the English language, because it, it is open to great interpretation. But I, I don't think you, you'd call Shakespeare on the whole a psychological writer, although he's an amazing observer of people. The plays, even, you know, Macbeth, and, and, which is a very dark play of, uh, of trouble, about the troubled mind, but most of, those, most of his plays are driven by these extraordinary plots and events and actions. Hamlet is not. Hamlet is totally, the play is totally driven by inaction of the man. He absolutely can't, he just can't make his mind up. He, he can't, he, he, he's, he, he's in a terrible state from the beginning because he can't understand why his mother has remarried so quickly after his father's death. And then he's plunged into this other level of despair, which is harder for a modern audience, is that he sees a ghost. Is the ghost good or bad? Should he listen to the ghost? And this goes on. The, the, the subplot, which is often erased, and we took a lot, we cut a lot. We cut it down to just about, the movie's about one hour and 50 minutes, but we cut the play down to two hours and 20 minutes. But the subplot of Fortinbras, which we did uh, reduce greatly, is very important because there is this alternative prince from an alternative land that they're trying to be diplomatic with, allowing the forces to march, uh, allowing the, 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 the Norwegian forces to march across Denmark. And this prince, uh, Fortinbras, has no problem with action, with mounting a huge army and taking huge risks. Hamlet is spurred on by that. He really is spurred on by that because he sees that directly before they ship him to England. And on that boat to England, he starts to become the man of action and he comes back as a man of action. So I don't know that any other of Shakespeare's plays is quite so psychological in that it deals with thought. You are, you are literally, the actor playing Hamlet is sharing his darkest, deepest, most confused, most complex thoughts with an audience. I think that might be, I think that's rare in Shakespeare. It's a bit more interesting than uh, William and Harry, isn't it? Um, uh, <laughs> but, uh, I think we'd better end it there, but uh, Robert and Sean, thank you very much for uh, coming on to Spectator TV. Yeah. That's all we've got time for this week on Spectator TV. I hope you've enjoyed it all. Uh, thank you very much for watching. A reminder to subscribe to our YouTube channel um, if you possibly can. You do that by clicking the subscribe button at the bottom of your screen and the famous bell icon. For just £5.75, you will get 
10 weeks of The Spectator, not absolutely free, it's £5.75, as I've already said, uh, but you will also get this mug that you may have noticed me drinking from very subtly. Um, it's The Spectator's special coronation mug, and it's a very beautiful thing too. Uh, we will send you that uh, to celebrate the fact that you've taken up a subscription to The Spectator, as if that needed any added incentive. Thank you very much for watching Spectator TV. Please tune in again next time. Thank you.